If you take your Bibles and turn again to Luke chapter 2, where we were just a few minutes ago, we're going to read in a moment again, beginning in verse 8. So turn to Luke 2 and verse 8. Fathers, we open your word today. We thank you as we sang that happy forever are your own. And we pray that you would speak today so that we would be your own and that we would be sure that we are your own through faith in your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Each morning when I turn on my computer and open the internet, among the first things that appear on the screen are the daily headlines from CNN and the Cincinnati Enquirer, the BBC, and so on. And like you, I notice that most of them seem to usually report bad news. Fiscal cliff stalemate, teenager killed in attempted robbery, gunman opens fire in Connecticut schoolhouse, and so on. And such is the news that I often choose not to read very far past the bold print. In fact, many days I read very little news at all because it seems like after a while so much of it is all the same. I think many of us are like that. We're, we're just going about our daily routines like the shepherds outside Bethlehem, not expecting that there's going to be any good news for us to hear, not expecting that there's going to be joy announced to us because so much of the world seems to be filled with bad news. So that we just hope perhaps to make it to the end of our shift or to the end of our week and into the weekend. Or maybe we're so wrapped up in our own lives that even when the headlines do promise good news, we just scan the subtitle and look at the picture and then turn our attention back to ourselves. We're not good at hearing good news or announcing good news as a culture, and that's what makes the Christmas story all the more poignant for a world like ours. On Christmas morning, the headline reads good news, doesn't it? On Christmas morning, the headline says, Good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. That's the headline today. But some of us may have been content so far this Christmas season just to notice the headline like we do with most of the news and only to skim over the rest of the story and to get on with our busy lives. But a headline like this, good news of great joy, is meant to wake us up from the slumber of the ordinary. It's meant to give us great joy in a world that thrives on bad news. This news is meant to change the very chart and course of our lives. Now, you may not have come this morning expecting to hear from God in such a way that the whole pathway of your life from this day on would be altered. And yet, neither did those shepherds that night keeping watch over their flocks by night. But it happened, didn't it? And it may happen to you if you will join with me this morning in reading beyond the bold print of Christmas and into the story itself. We all know the headline news on Christmas Day always reads the same. Baby born in Bethlehem. Peace on earth. But I hope that you're willing this morning to actually read the story with an open mind, and consider what it might mean for you. Actually, you have very little choice in the reading of the story part because you're stuck with me for the next half hour, and I'm going to do it for you. But I hope that your mind will be open 
and that you will consider what does this really mean for me. So then, let's read beyond the headlines and into the heart of this good news of great joy, just focusing on what happened outside Bethlehem in the fields where the sheep lay. Verse 8, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they'd seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This morning... From these verses, I just want to highlight four subheadings, if you will, in this news story. And the first is simply this. This is good news for all the people. This is good news for all the people. Let me point out two things there. First, the news is good. As we've been saying, I bring you good news. Verse 10. This isn't like our news so typically is. This isn't news of calamity or corruption or war. This is news we actually want to hear. This is good news. And we'll talk more about why in a few moments. But let me also point out here that this good news is, verse 10, for all the people. The news about Jesus is for the whole world, the angel said. Not a person is cut off from the blessings of Christmas because of his nationality or his color or her social class or so on. No one is excluded based on their behavior either. The good news, we're told, is for all the people. It's for church ladies, but also for criminals. It's for faithful children and for rebellious teenagers. It's for the moral and the immoral. It's for those who have been in church all their lives And for those who've never set foot in one until this Christmas season. The good news is for all the people. And nowhere does that become more evident than in the fact that this news was first published, verse 8, to shepherds. Let me read to you what I uncovered in my reading about first century shepherds. Quote, One should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. 
They represent the outcasts and sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. Isn't that perfect? When the good news is for all the people, isn't it perfect that the first people that it would come to would be these outcasts, these dishonest, unclean type of men? Here's a group of men huddled around their sheep who least deserve the glad tidings of Christmas. Here's a gathering of characters who probably wouldn't have found themselves in a Christmas service. And if they had, they would have been mighty uncomfortable in it. But the news was for them. And it was for them first of all. Can you picture these fellows out with their sheep? Perhaps they were out on the hillsides that night throwing back a few too many cold ones. Or maybe you can imagine them sitting around their fire talking about the kinds of filthy things that men talk about when they gather in groups like this. That's what the research says that shepherds were generally like. And so we can picture them and say to ourselves, well, little wonder why they were terribly frightened, verse 9, when the angel showed up. They knew well what kind of men they were. They knew well what the religious establishment thought about them. Maybe they'd even begun to think that God thought the same way about them. Nothing but mangy, no good tradesmen. But that's not how God thought at all, according to verse 10, isn't it? Is it? Listen to what the angel said again. Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, even you. They didn't have to be afraid because there's good news. Because the good news is for all the people. Because, in other words, God loves sinners. And just in case they miss the point, the angel makes it clear again in verse 11. Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. He's for you too, shepherds. And they needed to hear that. Just like you and I need to hear it. Because we might hear that the good news is for all the people and say to ourselves, because of how we've done this past week or because of something in our past, the good news is for all the people, but it's not for people like me. No, not after what I've done. It can't possibly be good news for me. But that's completely inaccurate. Because here are these shepherds who didn't deserve good news, and yet the angel says to them, today in the city of David is born for you a Savior. For you, can you hear the word of God speaking to them and speaking the same way to you this morning? Whoever you are and whatever you have done, however you might have messed up even this week, during this time of year when we think we should all be so joyful and be focused on the Lord, you have been focused on anything but, and yet here we have these words, a Savior has been born for you. The good news is for you. It's for all the people, we're told. So let me now tell you in the second place what makes that news so good. Namely, this good news for all the people is also news of a Savior. This news is news of a Savior. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you, verse 11, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's what makes the news so good, that it's about a Savior. The news, in other words, is not, you're a sinner? I'm a sinner. No big deal. We're all sinners. God is kindly, he's, he's an elderly type who would never hurt a flea. That's not the news, is it? The news is that sin is a very big deal. That God hates sin. 
that God judges sin, that the wages of sin is death, eternal death in hell, that sin is so serious that we need a Savior. That's the news. You need to be rescued. You're in deep trouble. That's the news. And yet the news also is not only you need a Savior, but there is a Savior. God loves sinners enough to send them a Savior, to send them His very own Son, to live among them as a human, to take their guilt upon Himself at the cross and to die in their place so that they don't have to. The good news is not that God winks at our pride or our self-will or our ignorance of His Word. The good news is that while God hates those things, Jesus came to save us from them. And if we simply listen to the angels, we will learn what it means for us that He has been born for you, a Savior. First, it means that the Savior brings to us peace. Verse 14, On earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. That's one thing that the Savior brings to us. Romans 5 elaborates on that peace when it says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of peace does Christmas bring? What kind of peace does Jesus bring? Perhaps not the peace that we normally warm and fuzzy think of when we think of red and green and Christmas. What Paul says, the kind of peace specifically that Jesus came to bring is peace with God. In other words, though we've declared war on God by our disobedience and our rebellion, God has declared peace. Even though we deserve to be punished by God, we are not. And the reason is because Jesus was punished in our place. Jesus was born as a human so that he could die as a human, absorbing the penalty that our sins deserve, so that if we'll repent of our sins and entrust ourselves to his mercy, our sins have been washed away in his blood, and there's now no barrier between us and our maker. That's good news, isn't it? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace with God. Further, the good news is that the Savior brings goodwill toward men. That's how the King James translates the end of verse 14. On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, the New American Standard uses the word pleased, but either way, the idea is the same. The good news is that God has goodwill toward sinners. Not only has God laid down his weapons and declared peace, as it were, not only has he put down the bow of his wrath and from across the enemy lines shouted out to you that all is forgiven and that there is peace, but in the incarnation of Christ, God has actually crossed over into your camp and declared you his friend. Peace, yes, from across these lines that we have drawn in the sand. But God not only gives us peace, He crosses the line and makes us His children. It's a wonderful thing that God has good will toward men. There's a wonderful picture of it. You might remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, where Edmund, the traitor, is not only absolved of his treachery, but actually welcomed by King Aslan back into his camp and made a prince. 
And that's the offer of goodwill towards men. Traitors against God become treasures of God. Prodigals become princes in God's family. On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And finally, in this passage at least, we're told that the Savior brings us great joy. The good news is news of a Savior, and the Savior brings us great joy. That's what the angel said in verse 10, isn't it? I bring you good news of great joy. Now, if you've read the Gospels very much, you know that Jesus often used everyday events to teach spiritual lessons. We call them parables. And one of the most famous of those parables, of course, is the story of the prodigal son later in this book of Luke. And here was a boy, Jesus said, who demanded his share of his father's estate and then who cashed it in and who ran away and who wasted his life and his inheritance on booze and women and backsliding and so on. And he found himself in a pigsty and decided he'd return home and plead the mercy of his dad. Now, as I've said before, many of us would give a son like that a royal tongue lashing, wouldn't we? Complete with a lot of you shouldas and I oughtas. But not this dad. This dad threw his son a party. A party to end all parties, complete with music and dancing and a feast. A feast that would make whatever you're going to eat on Tuesday seem like small potatoes. And the point of that story and the point of that feast, says Jesus, is that God is a thrower of parties. When a person comes to his senses and returns to his heavenly father, the scene in heaven is one of tremendous rejoicing. And that's why the angel could say, I bring you joy. Who is it that rejoices in heaven, Jesus said? The angels rejoice when one sinner repents. No wonder this angel could say, Jesus is coming and this is great joy. We're going to be having parties in heaven again and again and again because he is going to save his people from their sins. They are going to come to their senses. They're going to come back to their father and the party will be on. This is good news of great joy for all heaven. And for all who will repent and come to Jesus. So then, the Savior has come to bring us peace with God, goodwill from God, joy in God. What a Savior Jesus is. Thank God that the news of Christmas is not just the news of a a quaint little family that teaches us that all will someday be okay. No, the news of Christmas is there's something wrong with the world. The world needs a Savior, and God sent His Son to be it. Every one of us, no matter how moral we've tried to be, needs a Savior. And every one of us, no matter how immoral we actually have been, may have a Savior if we'll repent and believe on this Jesus. If we repent and if we believe, you and I will benefit tremendously from this good news of a Savior born in Bethlehem. But I want you to remember, thirdly, that this news is not, first of all, about us. This news is, first of all, about the glory of God. The news, the headline on Christmas morning, is, first of all, about the glory of God. If we're not careful, we might listening to all of this good news and all of this forgiveness and all of this welcome and all of this party, if we're not careful, we might begin to believe that Christmas is really about us. We might begin to so relish the gifts that God gives us in salvation that we give only short shrift to the giver. If we were to write the the news story, we might talk more about 
us and what we get than we would about the one who came and the God who sent him. We have to be careful of that because we, we might, with a kind of religious bent that makes us feel a little bit better about what we're doing, actually join the unbelieving world around us in making Christmas a celebration about me getting what I want. And if you trust Christ, you will get what you want at Christmas what you want spiritually. He will come and He will make His home with you. You will get the greatest gift of all. But let me remind you that salvation, that that gift is not first of all about you or about me. We benefit from it marvelously. Yes, we should be glad for it. Absolutely. But it's not this story, this news story is not first of all about us. God saves us, yes, because doing so magnifies Him. Saving us brings Him glory. In fact, just notice all the references to God's glory in these verses. Verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest. And then verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. This story is a story about the glory of God. And that's what God is most concerned with in the world. Yes, it's true what the angel said in verse 11. Today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior. But the reason the Savior is born for you and for me is so that we might glorify God and that He might be glorified in the highest even by the angels. God sent His Son into the world primarily that the world might see His glory, His greatness, His goodness, His perfection, and that we might echo that glory back to Him for His wonderful goodness to us. And the world seeing God's glory through the incarnation works in two ways. First, the fact that Jesus was God is God, made flesh, means that in Him we see the glory of God. Jesus said in John 14, 9, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And the Apostle John wrote that while no one has seen God at any time, John 1, 18, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. We cannot see the Father directly, John says. No one has at any time. But what mercy that the Father sent Jesus to us so that we might see Him, and in seeing Him, understand how magnificent God is. Do you see? The incarnation is about the glory of God. It's about us being able to see God. That's the chief goal of Christ and the chief goal of Christmas, that we might see God who is with us. But as we've been saying, the other goal of Christmas, obviously, was to send a Savior for mankind. But even this salvation of mankind, as I was saying, is a secondary goal because our salvation itself was designed to reveal the glory of God. The person of Jesus, the incarnation, reveals the glory of God, but our salvation actually promotes and reveals the glory of God too. Because when a person meets Jesus, what do they do? Here's a test for you if you really know Jesus. When a person meets Jesus, what do they do? They run around telling everybody how great God is. That's what we find in the Scriptures. When people met Jesus, they ran around and said, let me tell you about this one that I've met. Let me tell you what He did for me. That's a Christian. 
And that's exactly what God wants. Notice these shepherds down in verse 20. They went back glorifying and praising God for all that they'd seen and heard. They had seen Jesus. They had been changed by Jesus, evidently. And their natural response was to point to the greatness of God. They went back glorifying and praising God for all that they'd seen and heard. And it wasn't just the shepherds who praised God that night either, was it? The angels also got in on the act, singing Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. So Christmas, indeed the entire plan of our salvation, is first of all about God and his glory. It's about his being seen and loved and praised in the earth through the appearing of his son, who reveals the Father to us and through the lips of those to whom He appears. And lest we think that it sounds egotistical on God's part to do all of this mainly for His own glory, consider who is happier. Who is happier? The person whose soul is always turned inward and wrapped up in their own welfare? Or the no-name shepherd who forgets about himself and runs around pointing people to God? It's the shepherd, isn't it? The most unhappy people in the world are the ones who are always looking and thinking about themselves. And the most happy people in the world are the ones who have someone far greater than themselves to think about and talk about and glorify. And so the shepherd's joy reminds us that God's glory and our happiness are not mutually exclusive. The truth is that the more God glorifies himself, the happier those who love him will be. The more God glorifies himself, the happier that those who love him will be. And perhaps that's another good test for you. People who've really met Jesus run around talking about how great God is. And people who've really met Jesus don't feel uncomfortable to hear that God saved them, not mainly for them, but for himself. Because when we've met him, the happiest we ever are is when he is getting glory. Now, do you want to be happy in God? Then finally, you need to hear that this news requires a response. It's good news for all the people. It's news of a Savior. It's news that promotes the glory of God, but it is news that requires a response. I want you to notice in verses 11 and 12 that the angel was not simply passing along information to these shepherds. He was giving them information, no doubt, but he was doing so in such a way as to promote a response in the shepherds. He didn't, in other words, just announce, a Savior has been born for you. He's Christ the Lord. No. He announced that a Savior has been born, and then he went on to tell them where he had been born, in the city of David. And he didn't just tell them where he'd been born. He actually gave them instructions about how they might go about finding him. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Do you see what the angel was doing? He was letting these fellows know that they ought to get up from their game of poker that night and go into the city and look for the king. And the news of a savior is just like that, isn't it? It requires a response. We don't just come on Christmas to worship so that we can think about Jesus and then go back to our lives, do we? No, the news of a Savior requires a response. And frankly, any nonchalance from these saviors or these shepherds or from us would actually be a response, wouldn't it? It would be a rejection of the good news. Can you imagine 
this angel standing before them and saying, Today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And they said, Boy, that is great. That makes me feel wonderful inside. Isn't this the most wonderful time of the year? And then they went on tending their sheep. We would read the story and say, What fools! That they didn't do something about what they heard. That they didn't take this news and respond to it. And yet so often that's what we're tempted to do, isn't it? To sit and to hear and to bask in the story of Jesus and then to walk out and do nothing with it except feel good. No, we must go to Bethlehem and see this thing. We must come to this Christ who's now sitting at the right hand of the Father and see this thing that we've been told about. And that's what the shepherds did. They responded. And they're an example to us. And let me make three observations about their response with application to our own lives. First of all, they believed what the angel said. Very simple. They did not say, what a nice moral lesson there is to be learned from this Christmas tale. No, they believed that the angel was telling them the gospel truth. They took what he said at face value, and so must you and I. If we hope to be saved, there is verifiable historical fact behind Luke chapter 2, and it must be treated that way. But not only did they believe what he said, then they reasoned, they thought about it. The shepherds in verse 15 batted the angels' words around between them. They mulled over what they should do with Jesus, and they came to a conclusion. Let us go straight to Bethlehem. Have you done this? Some of you perhaps need for the first time to consider what you need to do with Jesus and others need to do it again. Have you taken time to consider the claims of the Bible to come to solid, logical conclusions about who Jesus is and therefore what you should do with him? I hope that you have. And if you haven't, I want to urge you this very day before the window of opportunity passes you by to reason with yourself about Jesus lest you miss the opportunity and find yourself striving to find him when it's too late. And then notice thirdly that not only did they believe what the angel said and they reasoned with themselves about what they should do, but then in the third place they hurried. They hurried, verse 16. Once they'd come to the conclusion that they must go and see Jesus, we're told they did it without delay. And again, I just ask, what about you? I wonder how many of us have known for a while that we need to give ourselves away to Jesus, or how many of us have known for a while that we need to come back to Jesus because we're not where we once were, but we've been putting it off for another day. Oh, New Year's is coming, and so that's when I'll come to Bethlehem and see all these things that I've been told about. That's when I'll return to my Bible. That's when I'll get back on my knees in prayer. No, you must learn from the shepherds. They came, verse 16, in a hurry. And found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Today's the day to come to Jesus. Today's the day to be saved. Today is the day to repent and return if you have drifted. Today is the day to repent and believe in his name. We must hurry. Now let me close by going back to my newspaper analogy for just a moment. The Christmas headline, good news of great joy which shall be for all the people, is not one which we may wisely ignore, is it? Woe to us if we read this story, if we pass through this season where all around us is reminding us that God has been made flesh, 
And we only look at the headline and then throw the newspaper in the recycle bin and return to business as usual. Woe to us if we do that. If you picked up tomorrow's Enquirer and it read free Bengals playoff tickets on the front of the newspaper, there would be tens of thousands of people calling that phone number, wouldn't there? Or if it read Brent Spence Bridge, unsafe for travel, you would become accustomed to taking 471 instead of 75 across the river, wouldn't you? You would read the article. You would take notice. You would act accordingly. How much more must we take notice when eternity hangs in the balance, when God's own Son has come into the world? How much more should we move when the headlines read, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born. He's Christ the Lord. He's the one that we've been waiting for all of this time. So come ye. Come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold Him. Born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. I plead with you, come, let us adore him this Christmas season. Christ the Lord.